welcome to this week's episode of Compound Your Knowledge, where we cover research from our blog at alphaarchitect.com. This week we have two papers for you. Why do enterprise multiples predict expected stock returns, which was actually research done by uh, and published by Dr. Jack here. And the second paper we have for you this week, asset allocation versus factor allocation. Can we build a unified method? We will start with the paper uh, and research from Jack, why do enterprise multiples expect, predict expected stock returns? So I'm gonna read you the abstract to, to start just to set the stage. The enterprise multiple EM effect has been documented across global stock markets. EM is a robust predictor of expected average returns and generates a stronger value effect than traditional value metrics. We find evidence that the EM effect is primarily attributable to mispricing and cannot be explained by higher systematic risk. We document that earnings announcement returns, forecast errors, and forecast revisions all support the notion that the EM effect is driven by mispricing associated with predictable investor expectation errors. Finally, we show that the EM effect is stronger during times of strong market sentiment, which also supports the mispricing based hypothesis. So my job here at Alpha Architect is to help you all understand some of this better. Um, so with this paper, I wanna start by getting to the basics of it. And then we will, uh, uh, or if you want to really get into the nitty gritty on the charts and things like that, you're welcome to you know, look it up on our blog or you can reach out to us on Twitter or via email and we can send you this paper. Um, so let's start with the enterprise multiple is, div is, is enterprise value divided by EBITDA. So what is enterprise value, Jack? And can you contrast that with measuring a company by its market cap? Sure. Yeah, so I think the simplest way to explain enterprise value is to think of it as if I wanted to go out today and buy a company, how much money or cash would I need in order to buy the entire company, mm. right? So what would you need? You would first need to buy out all of the stock. Right, so that would be just the market cap of the firm, and then plus like you know preferred shares if there's any outstanding and minority interest, right? Yep. But essentially the market cap. Yep. Okay. Then you would also need to go and buy all the debt, right? So some firms have a lot of debt, some firms have no debt, right? So, but regardless, if you wanted to buy the whole firm, you'd have to buy out all the debt, mm -hmm. right? So it's market cap plus debt. But then one other thing you would take into account is. If I went and bought an entire firm, and now I own the firm, mm -hmm. technically I own the cash. Yes. Right. So what you would say is it's market cap plus debt minus cash. Mm -hmm. Right. So in theory, if you went out and bought Apple today, I don't. I have no clue what their cash amount is. Or Berkshire Hathaway. Right. They have like 150 billion dollars in cash. You would literally have 150 billion dollars in cash if you bought all their equity and debt. Right. right? And so how does this compare and why do we care about it compared to just comparing all market caps, mm -hmm. right? So if you look at the PE of a firm, right, the price to earnings ratio, that's mainly just done by looking at the market cap of the firm and the earnings of the firm. Yes. 
Now, as I mentioned before, some firms can have a lot of debt or no debt. Mm -hmm. So if you have two firms that have no debt, their PE multiple would be the same if you use enterprise value as opposed to market cap. But if you had a firm that had a ton of debt, mm -hmm. right, it may be cheap on PE, but really expensive on enterprise multiple. Right. Like a, an example that I generally give is like General Motors in 08 was cheap on PE on enterprise multiple, or you know, if you just change the market cap to include debt, yes. it was very expensive. Right, right. And so it accounts for the different, what enterprise multiples allow you to do is make comparisons across firms with different capital structures. And, and we're just trying to look at what's the company worth, right? The enterprise value, as Jack said, taking into the full uh, structure. And then uh, what's its economic engine providing? What's the EBITDA? What's the earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization? Uh, okay, so what was your goal in this research on the enterprise multiple then? The main goal as explained is like why do enterprise multiples predict expected stock returns the question went back to the the age-old risk or mispricing mm -hmm. right can we try to better explain or, or try can we try to better understand sorry why enterprise multiples appear to work got it and I'm gonna give you a statement here you can say totally correct kind of right totally incorrect because I, I want to try to get everybody to understand from an actual practitioner world, right? This academic stuff is great, but from a practitioner world, why do we care about this? So here's the statement. We care that the enterprise multiple is a strong predictor relative to other value screens because if all value screens seem to work by providing you know, outperformance over the market, and if the enterprise multiple can predict returns better than those other value screens, then waiting to the cheapest enterprise multiple stocks, we hopefully can capture higher returns long-term. Correct, incorrect, kind of right. Yeah, so kind of right, right? Yeah. So, so the idea is, um, Essentially, like you care, right? So, you know, in, in our other paper, the horse race paper that Wes and I wrote in like 2010, we looked at all the different value metrics, like cash flow to price, or sorry, cash flow over enterprise value, <clears throat> uh, PE multiple, book to market, enterprise multiples, and all these value measures seem to work, yep. right? So that's good, right? Yep. In that they all were directionally exactly the same. Yep. Value did better than growth, historically, historically. right? And historically. then this question was, well, and what your statement was, was, well, hey, if this does better, then hopefully, if this better explains returns, then maybe that's a better one to use. Yep. And I would say directionally that's accurate, but obviously there's gonna be huge variation across time. Okay. Um, like since we wrote that paper, cash flow has done better than enterprise multiples, mm -hmm. but you know, it depends on the time frame you look, you know, that has done, you know, compared to book to market or PE, it's going to vary over which time period, which one does the best. Got it. Um, okay. So that leads us to then what what we're, you know, what this uh, research was really all about. There's a uh, chart on page eight of the paper. It's Exhibit Three. Jack, can you please explain to us what we're looking at in this chart? Yeah. So this chart 
as well as table four is our best attempt to answer that question. Yep. Is it driven by risk mm. or is it driven by mispricing? Mm. So let me explain to you how you would argue this, right? So if it's driven by, uh, well, for, first off, let me orient everyone if you're actually looking on the video, right? But we have uh, the EMHML. And what that does is it just goes long value, mm. shorts growth using enterprise multiple as the value metric, yep. right? Well, you see it had a positive premium over time, not surprising, right? Sure. So, so that's one. Then the question is, is it risk or mispricing? A, a good argument there is, well, hey, if it's risk, we would expect random subsets of value minus growth to have the same return, right? Because they should all have the same risk characteristic, right? If you go long value, short growth, but just pick random sorts, mm -hmm. you should, we should find that value minus growth all has the same return or yeah. similar returns, similar risk characteristics. What we find is the opposite. So what we do here is we plot our called high and low mispricing portfolios. And how do we do that? Well, in academic jargon, there's a, or literature, there's a paper standby on you have 11 mispricing measures. Mm -hmm. What are they? It's like share buybacks, good is better. Momentum, good is better. Volatility, low is better, right? And there's yep. other ones in there. We just combine 11 of them. Mm -hmm. And what we say is the high mispricing portfolio is gonna go long value stocks where there's high mispricing, i.e. it has good momentum, it has share buybacks, it has low volatility, yep. right? So maybe and they then, shouldn't be cheap. Yep, so maybe. value firms that generally have high mispricing. And then it's gonna go short growth firms, expensive firms, that for some reason actually, you know, they have high mispricing there, so it's the opposite. Yep. So expensive firms that have, you know, low momentum, or diluting shareholders, high beta. Right, and Pet, pets.com, huge share price, no revenues, no, you know, whatever. Like the fundamentals yep. are all whack. And so what we find is that the high mispricing portfolio has much higher returns and really, if you compare it to the low mispricing, it's significant. In fact, the, the crazy thing is the low mispricing portfolio, which goes long value, short growth, almost has no positive return, mm. right? So when you go to table four of the paper, you're like, wait, some, you guys told me value minus growth is positive. Mm -hmm. Well, if you, if you took a subset of it, it actually doesn't have a positive return. And so that's why we argue it's mispricing in yep. that the value growth spread is mainly driven by the mispricing portfolio. Got it. Um, got it. Yeah. So, so would you say, you, so you, yeah, you, you need to be, you need to own the stocks that are mispriced specifically? It, well, in general, historically, that was what drove a lot of the mispriced, like the value minus growth spread uh, was you. driven, was driven at least in this time period, the sample by the mispriced value in growth stocks. Got it. And, and yeah, and, and, and we care about this because a, a key question, and I'm reading from the paper, a key question in asset pricing is whether high average expected returns associated with value stocks and low average expected returns earned by glamour stocks are compensation for risk or a result of systematic mispricing. So risk would be, it's riskier to own value stocks because they might go to zero. Right, mm -hmm. that's that's they're riskier. Therefore, they should give you a higher return, um, uh, as opposed to this systematic mispricing, which Jack just described, where maybe they're maybe they're actually just mispriced for for some reason. Um, okay.
So uh, the EM effect may be driven by mispricing instead of risk, as we said. If cheap EM stocks, though, Jack, are mispriced, why isn't it arbitraged away? Why doesn't everyone just buy stocks that are cheap by the enterprise multiple and short stocks that are expensive by the enterprise multiple and now you know everything's arbitraged? Yeah, so important to note, which is exhibit three is a long short portfolio. Long value, high, like long value with you know, good characteristics, short growth with bad characteristics. What we look at in this paper is we specifically say, hey, how much of this return is driven by the long and short leg? And we find a lot of it's driven on the short leg. And to the extent that shorting these growth stocks is costly or hard to do, right, that would be like a limit of arbitrage. And right. so that's kind of what we find is that while it may be driven by mispricing, it may be very hard to actually arbitrage this specifically away. Right. And, and, and the other one, the average monthly returns, although favorable, are highly volatile, as we're seeing, you know, living through right now, uh, to the extent that one believes there are principal agent conflicts between asset owners and fund managers. So that would be, uh, you know, if you, a financial advisor, know, believe in your heart of hearts that something's going to pay you a higher return, but you also maybe know that it's going to underperform for five years and get you fired by your client. Well, you know this arbitrage opportunity exists, but you're not going to take advantage of it. That's the principal agent conflict between asset owners and fund managers. Um, so one would expect that strategies seeking to exploit longer term profit opportunities, which includes the EM value anomaly discussed in this article, could continue to exist in the future. Uh, observing the EM effect in theory may be a lot easier than exploiting the opportunity in practice. You wrote that, Jack? Yeah, I mean, that's just a statement, right? So remember, like, in behavioral finance, if you, if you, there's two sides to it. You need to find the behavioral error, which is possibly mispricing, which we highlight, mm -hmm. as well as a limit to arbitrage. So one of the limit to arbitrage we highlight specifically in the paper is it might be actually hard to short these. Mm -hmm. Another limit of arbitrage, which is almost it's very hard to test is the so-called principal agent conflict, right? And to the extent that exists, that would actually imply that possibly this mispricing could continue in the future as well. Yes. Good. All right. That's the enterprise multiple. That's the explanation. That's why we think it'll work in the future. The next paper we're going to discuss, and this is just kind of funny, but it's called asset allocation versus factor allocation. Can we build a unified method? Funny, I say, because I brought this up. We have to, you know, I have to go find us some research from the blog to go discuss. So I was like, oh, wow, this is great, Jack. Let's just talk about this one. I just kind of read the, the title, um, you know, and it starts. There is increasing interest in the idea of allocating across factors instead of across traditional asset classes. Allocating across factors has the intuitive appeal of allocating across building blocks that are in theory pure sources of return. So I was like, Jack, cool. This paper's talking about allocating across factors for an investment portfolio. That's so timely. Let's talk about that. Jack, 
why am I wrong in, in how they're referring to factors versus how we refer to factors? Yeah, so, I. you know, you and yeah. I and so in general, you know, uh, we write a lot about factor investing and in general, it's specifically focused on equities, right? But, we, you know, we talk as, as well about factors in uh, bonds and other asset classes as well on the blog. But so a natural thought is, oh, hey, this is talking about factor investing, right? Yeah. Just looking at the title, kind of looking at the description. And one thing that was interesting, because uh, Ryan sent it, when you sent it over, yeah. I was like, oh, this is an interesting one. I was just surprised you picked it. Uh -huh. um, really what they're talking about here is within asset allocation, i.e. I'm going to allocate to U.S. stocks, international stocks, bonds, both in the U.S., you know, inflation bonds, gold, etc. What they are talking about here is allocating towards other types of factors, mm -hmm. right? Right. So, you know, going back, uh, like in the 80s, like there was a Chen Roll and Ross paper, they basically tried to like describe stock returns using e economic factors, such as like changes in... Uh, Unexpected inflation, looking at inflation, employment growth, right? Like mm -hmm. tying it to economic factors. Yes, economic so, factors. Yeah. And so what this paper is trying to do is tie economic, It's sorry, it's trying to build a framework right. to tie asset allocation, i.e. how do you allocate across factors, yep. towards specific economic factors. Yes. So the ones that they pick in here, and for those interested, I recommend you go read the paper, but... The, the factors that they pick are economic growth, inflation, mm. right? So you're taking inflation risk, real rate risk, you're taking risk relative to interest rates, as well as other known factors that you can build intra and across asset classes like momentum, winners keep winning, and volatility, mm -hmm. right? And so what they do is they try to build a framework for if you wanted to allocate, have an asset allocation portfolio that allocates towards those five factors, how would you do it? Right. And you have to build these things called factor mimicking portfolios. And I'll just give you an example, right? So in exhibit four of the paper, right? This kind of makes sense. If you are looking to allocate towards economic growth, mm -hmm. well, what do you see? We see that the Russell 1000, 2000 REITs and EM stocks all load positively on growth. Yes. Okay, what loads negatively on growth? Bonds. Yeah. Makes sense. Got it. Right? If you're concerned about, you know, inflation, right? Well, what happens here, right? You get actually negative loadings on equities, positive on bonds. So this is a way to change the asset allocation framework from simply what's your stock bond allocation yep. to what is your allocation of risk across these certain factors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is a framework how to build it. Obviously, you could change the factors you allocate towards, but it's a neat framework. Um, and it's definitely different though than factor investing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but yeah, help, helps you understand if you're concerned about inflation or if you're concerned about growth, not really a concern, but um, interest rates, how, how, how can you think of various asset classes to plug in against that? Is yeah. that kind of mm -hmm. correct? Okay. Um, Cool. So that's what we uh, that's what we got for this week. We got your enterprise multiples. We got uh, some ideas on how to construct your portfolios. Um, I said this week is sponsored by Vanek. Uh, this is my somebody gave me this tie from from Vanek. So thank you, Vanek. Uh, and we will see you guys next week.
The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC, all rights reserved.